if you uh, don't have, whoa, <laughs> if you don't have a Bible with you, we have some for you. I think it'll, it'll be good to, uh, to have one in your hand and open as we unpack uh, uh, John chapter 12 today. And so uh, as the kids finish clearing out, we've got some people coming in with some of uh, the Bibles that we stock back there. If you need one, just catch the eye of one of our ushers and they'll, they'll hand one to you. We'll be on page 750 in that Bible today. When I was in seminary, uh, Tina and I and our, our three-year-old daughter then set out for New Jersey uh, so that I could attend a, a course out there. And we decided that, that we would drive at night. Uh, and that would allow our daughter to sleep in the car while we took turns driving. So we left early evening, and it was a 14-hour trip of, of nonstop, steady driving, took turns. And uh, we thought it was a brilliant plan uh, because we'd, we'd save motel costs, and I didn't have a nickel anyway, so it was, uh, it was a great idea. Uh, but we, we started out, and we got, oh, just a few minutes down the road, and we heard this little voice from the back seat going, are we almost there? And uh, we would just say, no, honey, not yet, not yet. And then a few minutes later, it would be, are we almost there? Uh, not yet. And, and so uh, you probably have been through a similar situation uh, to that yourself. For a kid, it comes down to knowing you have left home, uh, knowing there's a destination out there, but there is this this unending time in between when you just don't know and, and you want to know. Um, so where's that going? Well, over the course of Jesus' ministry, he alluded a number of times to an event that was coming, but his followers didn't know when it would come. And so all they knew that it was that it was not yet. Uh, and I wonder if they asked, when's it going to be? In today's passage, it comes. In today's passage, it comes. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 12, uh, verses 20 to 36. So if you uh, have a Bible open, please uh, join me and, and look at this uh, with me. Starting at uh, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. 
Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as recorded in the Gospel of John, he has been talking about a special hour that is coming. In John chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, uh, you'll remember Mary mentions to Jesus that they've run out of wine, and Jesus says to her, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So this hour is still future. Have you ever wondered what he was getting at there so early in his ministry? In chapter 7, Jesus claims to be sent from God. And in verse 30, it says they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Next chapter, chapter 8, uh, Jesus tells the people, if you know me, if you knew me, you'd know, know my father also. And in verse 20, it says, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So time and again, it's not yet. It's not yet. But here we get to the point where his hour has come. In chapter 12, verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in chapter 12, verse 27, he mentions this hour two times. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, it says the hour had come. Same thing in chapter 17, verse 1. The hour had come. So this hour that Jesus has been talking about from the very beginning of his ministry is here. It's here. And that's what we want to unpack this morning. So first, let's look at the setting. We find the setting in verses 20 to 22. It's during the week we call Holy Week or Passion Week the week of Jesus' passion or his suffering. So that week has begun. We looked last week at the triumphal entry, the event that takes place on Sunday of that week, and we celebrate that as Palm Sunday. And the events of chapters 13 through 17 then take place on what we call Maundy Thursday, Thursday of that week in a place that we refer to as the Upper Room. Again, the other gospel writers give a lot more detail than John does about what Holy Week looks like. We looked at the days of Holy Week on the Sunday before Easter this year, and uh, we looked at it from the perspective of the chronology given by the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so you may remember that we, we considered Palm Sunday, the day of his triumphal entry, uh, the day we called Manic Monday, uh, the day that, that Jesus uh, turned over the tables in the temple and cursed the fig tree, uh, 
Troubled Tuesday was the day of the temple debates when he and the Pharisees were going at it all day. Wednesday we called Silent Wednesday. It was the day he spent in Bethany with his closest friends before he went back into Jerusalem for the last time to suffer and die. Maundy Thursday, of course, is that day in the upper room. But after the upper room uh, was Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest and the trial that led into Friday morning, Good Friday, when he was crucified. That then led to what we called Sad Saturday, a day characterized by fear with his disciples in hiding. And then finally, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, where Jesus demonstrated his victory over the grave. And what we find, though, in John's gospel, again, is that John isn't interested in that level of detail. His gospel is all about who Jesus is. And so the best we can place the narrative of this week's passage is somewhere between Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, and Maundy Thursday in the upper room. It happened Monday, Tuesday, or, or Wednesday, somewhere in there. And true to form, John is going to focus on who Jesus is and the significance of why he came. So the passage for today opens with some Greeks coming to uh, Philip, one of the twelve and explaining that they want to see Jesus. This phrase, we want to see Jesus, implies that they want to get an appointment with Jesus. They, they like an interview with him. So Philip goes and gets Andrew, Peter's brother, and together they go and bring Jesus the request of these Greeks. So why Philip? Why would they come to Philip? It's a good question. Could be because he's the only one of the 12 with a Greek name. And John also mentions that he's from Bethsaida in Galilee. That's Gentile territory. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, it speaks of Galilee of the Gentiles. So it was a Gentile-dominated region. And so these people come to Philip because they are Gentiles, they are Greeks. And this is a very Gentile thing. These Greeks are looking for the one guy with a Greek name who comes from a very Gentile region. And they want to see Jesus, the one the Sanhedrin in last week's chapter declared needs to die. So the Jewish leaders want to kill him, and the Greeks want to connect with him. And it's fascinating that the moment these Greeks come wanting to meet with Jesus is the moment that Jesus announces his hour has come. In uh, verse 22, uh, Philip took their request to Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That word replied suggests responding to a question, uh, asking for information. And, and so Jesus is responding to their request by saying, my hour has come. In chapter 11, we see the Sanhedrin plotting how to kill Jesus. In chapter 12, we see the Pharisees concerned that so many people are now following Jesus. And so we're seeing here the height of Jewish opposition as well as the height of Gentile openness. And it's at that moment that Jesus announces his hour 
is at hand. So what is this hour? Well, we're about to see that this hour is really the consummation of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a very concentrated period of time when Jesus would surrender his life to purchase our salvation. Ultimately, the hour would be the hour of his suffering and death. And it'll take up the remaining, the bulk of the remaining nine chapters of John's gospel. So what's the hour about? There are several things that stand out in verses 23 to 28 that tell us what the hour is about. Let me just mention four of them. The first is glory. This hour is about glory. Jesus is glorified in this hour through his suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, the other gospel writers focus on the agony of the cross. John focuses on the glory of Jesus in fully completing his mission, fully fully surrendering himself to the Father's will, trusting the Father. It's the consummation of his coming to earth. Jesus glorifies the Father through his obedience. Take a look at verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's about glorifying the Father. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. The people didn't understand all that was going on, but the voice was affirming that Jesus was glorifying the Father through his suffering, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. So the hour is about glory, glory to the Father, glory also to the Son, Another thing that shows up in the text is that this hour is about faith. Look at verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What's he talking about? Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself there. And so he says, you know, a farmer will will plant a seed in faith that by committing it to the ground, it it will produce an abundant crop. Many, many more seeds will come out of that single seed. And so he's pointing ahead to his own submission to the Father in death, trusting that his resurrection will provide salvation for the many. So one seed, much fruit. One sacrifice, salvation of all who call on him. But it takes faith. It takes faith for a farmer to commit his seed to the ground. It takes Jesus' faith to commit his life to death, trusting the Father to raise him from the dead. What's the day about? The hour about? It's about glory. It's about faith. It's also about the cost of discipleship. Look at verses 25 and 26. Right after speaking about the single seed, referring to himself, he switches over to talking about his followers. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
hating it in the sense of counting it of little worth compared to what is eternal. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So after Jesus talks about himself and a seed, he personalizes this for his followers. As it is for him, it is for them as well. There's a cost to discipleship. I have a book that I use uh, in part of my devotional reading each day. It's, it's called On This Day. It looks at 365 days in Christian history. And I'm amazed at how many of those pages are filled with people suffering and, and uh, sacrificing and many giving their lives for the cause of the gospel. That's a part of following Christ. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India who served 55 years on the field. She was a prolific writer, and she wrote this. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or hand or side? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against the tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master, so shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far, who has no wound? No scar. Jesus never shied away from telling his followers that following him would be costly. There is a cost to discipleship, and Jesus reminds us of it as he tells us about his own hour. What's the hour about? It's about glory, it's about faith, it's about the cost of discipleship. One more, it's about agony. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give a lot of detail about what went on in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's there that Luke records that, that Jesus sweat great drops of blood. John doesn't do that. John spares us the detail, but still shows us the agony of that moment for Jesus. All the agony of Gethsemane is packed into this single verse. Jesus says, it tells us in, in verse 27, my soul is troubled. And that word troubled refers to extreme emotional distress. And then it goes on to say, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this reason I came to this hour. And that no in the NIV is, is fine, but actually in the Greek, it's not a no, it's a but. Jesus is wrestling here with what he ought to do in light of this hour. He's weighing things in his mind. And so he asks, shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But this is why I came. 
His purpose in coming was to give his life for us. So what's this hour about? It's about glory. It's about faith. It's about cost. It's about agony. And what does it accomplish? Again, a few things from the text taken from verses 28 to 36. First thing it does is it changes how people see the Messiah. Last week, we looked at verse 16. And it tells us, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Jesus riding in on a donkey, how uh, Zechariah 9.9 is fulfilled in him. It says, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. So they didn't understand then. And today in verse 34, we see the belief that the Messiah wouldn't ever die. It says, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man needs to be lifted up? So they have this notion that the Messiah would never die. But Jesus makes it clear, no, the Messiah needs to die. He came to die. Uh, he will die soon. And he encourages the people to live under his light while they still have it. So one of the things that this hour accomplishes is it changes how people see the Messiah. Instead of this conquering king coming in, he will be the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, who gives his life as a ransom. Second thing that this hour accomplishes is that it glorifies God. Again, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The trusting obedience of Jesus, the trusting obedience to death provides salvation for the whole fallen human race provides the restoration of everything that was lost in the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And this is all to the glory of God. And one day, Revelation chapter 5 tells us people from every tribe and language and people and nation will glorify him. What does the hour accomplish? It changes how people see the Messiah. It glorifies God. Third, it defeats Satan. Verse 31 now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. What Satan wanted to use to defeat Jesus became the instrument by which Jesus defeated Satan. Imagine the celebration in hell on Good Friday when Jesus was crucified and died. Then Resurrection Sunday came and turned it all around. And the best Satan could do was to bruise Jesus' heel as Jesus crushed the serpent's head. What does this day accomplish? It changes how people see the Messiah. It glorifies God. It defeats Satan one more. It opens heaven's door for everyone. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That word lifted up really has a double meaning. I think John was taking advantage of that. It's a physical lifting up as in on the cross. But it also refers to exaltation. Lift him up. Lift him up in worship. Lift him up in praise. And again, John is focusing here on the glory 
of Christ so that his being lifted up on a cross becomes a means for his exaltation. And what his lifting up will do is to draw all people to himself, Jew and Gentile. Heaven's door is open to all who call on him in faith. So the passage starts out with some Gentiles wanting to see Jesus and ends with Jesus opening heaven's door to everyone, everyone, Jew, Gentile alike. This was the hour that Jesus knew was coming all along. It's why he came. And it came at a time that John had hinted about in his prologue in chapter 1, when he said, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what John's gospel is all about. He, he begins by talking about to all who will believe him. He gives the right to become children of God. He ends it by saying, I've written these things to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and by believing find life in his name. Jesus knew all along that his hour was coming. We see his awareness from the very beginning of John's gospel. Yet he didn't tell his disciples when that hour would come. Can you think of another event that Jesus has told us is coming, but we don't know when? Jesus came once to die. He will come again in glory. This is what the Bible calls our blessed hope. So as much as there was an hour when Jesus would come and suffer and give his life for us, there is an hour coming when he will return in triumph. There have been times when believers have talked more about Jesus' return than we do today. It seems to be a, a topic not a whole lot of people want to talk about these days. We need to be careful, though, not to fall into the trap that Peter warned us about in 2 Peter chapter 3, when he says that people will think things are as they always were and always will be. Where is this promised coming that Jesus talked about? And Peter reminds us there that God's timetable is different from our timetable and that he's not slow in keeping the promise of his return. But what he's doing is giving us time to get the word out before the end comes and it's too late. He wants none to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. We pray it will be soon. But for us, for now, it's not yet. I can still hear a little voice from the back seat saying, are we almost there? And the answer is still the same. Not yet. Not yet. But it's coming. Every day that God gives us before that hour of Jesus' return is time that we can use first to make sure that we're ready for it ourselves and secondly, to share that message with others that they can be ready to. So what's your response to this hour of Jesus that he came and suffered and died for you, for me? Have you put your trust in him? 
They've asked him to apply that to your account, to forgive you your sin, to live in you and be Lord of your life. And are there people in your life that you're praying for, that you can share that message with, that they can be ready when that hour comes as well? Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you that the mystery of, of what this hour is that Jesus first spoke of in, in chapter 2 of John's gospel is, is now before us. And we can see that it's, it's this intense time when he suffered and died and rose again, the very purpose of his coming. So, Father, let us not miss out on that. I pray that our hearts would be responsive to you, that we would desire that you would apply to our account what Jesus did on that cross, that we might know life, life abundant, life eternal with you, and that we would share that message as well with others that we care about, that we want to see with us when we stand before you one day. So help us to follow through with that in our own lives and also in the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name.